I've got a weird uh, cough thing going this morning that I'm going to try and uh, contain. Um, pulled a muscle in my neck coughing yesterday. I was coughing so bad. And uh, sort of weird. Take things for granted until you got to stand and preach, and every uh, breath is sort of fragile right now. I want to begin this morning in prayer, and I want to share something with you before we pray. If you want to go ahead and turn to John chapter 18, you can be ready for us to climb in. We're going to pray for a guy named Jim Gatliff and the Hunt Baptist Association. It's, it's a group of churches in our area that sort of are cooperation of churches that we're part of. Uh, just this last, I guess the last few months, we've made the decision to not contribute financially to the Hunt Baptist Association anymore. And I think in, in practice, we're not part of the association. We're still on their website from what I understand. But we're not really seeing eye to eye with the association. This is a very different marker of what church is or what kingdom work is. Um, for example, this last week, some of y'all may know that uh, the Hunt Baptist Association brought in a guy named uh, Ken Freeman, an evangelist that's uh, sort of a, um, I don't know the guy, so I'm, this is, is not an indictment or an, uh, a criticism, sort of a hired gun sort of concept. You know, take the person out of the picture, but it's sort of this, okay, Greenville needs to bring in an evangelist um, who's not part of any of our local churches, um, but we're going to bring him in so he can get something done that we can't get done. Sort of a weird, I mean, it, just even the plan is sort of, doesn't really track with kind of our concept of kingdom advancement. But over the course of the week, we got emails, I got emails, and I forwarded them to the elders, um, with sort of a head count. To date, there's been this many decisions, and there's been this many um, professions of faith, and sort of like, I don't know, sort of a weird marker of what God is up to. It, it, it doesn't reconcile with kind of what we've been, the journey we've been on in the last few years. And it doesn't seem to reconcile with the Great Commission to make disciples. In my experience, it's not hard to find people that don't want to go to hell. And I don't want to be condemning. I didn't even hear any of his messages. I'm not condemning any of that. I'm just careful and cautious because it's not hard to find people that will pray a prayer and get wet if you say you don't go to hell and your life will get turned around because everybody's life's a mess. But making disciples is a different matter altogether. People who will bear a cross, <laughs> who want to, who eagerly worship Christ and want to know him. See, the problem is in, in Greenville, we have this weird congregation, and I don't mean a church congregation, a congregation of people in Greenville that say that they're square with God because they've had some sort of event. They've had some sort of what that the head count pointed to, decision. They've made a decision, but yet they had no use for the church. No use for the people that Christ died for, the people that he's coming back to get. 
So if you do a fruit examination in Greenville, you go, wait a second, something doesn't reconcile. And I fear that that sort of mindset, instead of advancing the kingdom, feeds the monster of a bunch of people that think they're square with God, yet have no use for the church or the people of God. Or as Jesus would say, if you're truly my disciples, you will abide in my word. So if we look at just fruit, we have to go, wait a second, this doesn't reconcile. So long explanation for a prayer. What we're praying about, what I'm praying about right now publicly is that we can engage the association with gentleness and respect. It's easy to be a know-it-all horses behind. That, that comes easy for me. <laughs> I don't have to try that. It's effort, though, to humbly and gently and lovingly and truthfully with the word as the instrument say, wait a second, let's examine the fruit and let's be about kingdom advancement. Let's make disciples. Can God use an evangelist that comes to town? You bet he can. But let's put it in context of the work of the church. So my prayer this morning is sharing that with you also is that you will pray for the elders as we sort of prepare a statement for how we engage this association. We want to do it gently, lovingly, truthfully, respectfully. Um, It's sort of time to do that. Let's pray. Lord, what a... um, sort of a weird prayer and a weird thing to share with this body. Most of this body probably has no idea even about these dynamics or this association or Jim Gatliff. But Lord, I bring this before this people and bring this before you with a burden that we can be salty and bright and aromatic even with, maybe especially with, those who share Christ as Savior and Lord in this community. Lord, I have no doubts um, about this association and the churches associated with this association, that their love for Jesus. I really don't. My doubt, Lord, is about the marker of kingdom advancement and about what you've called us to. And Lord, I pray that we, um, that if it's time for us to speak into this, that you will give us insight how to do this lovingly, gently, respectfully, carefully, so that we'll bring glory to you, that we can speak the truth into this setting and this context for your namesake. Lord, give us insight into how to do that. Ultimately, we want you to be famous in Greenville. We want what I believe the association wants. Lord, give us clarity about how to go about that. I pray for Jim Gatliff, too. I pray for an ear. I pray for an opportunity to engage him with the word, um, not with methodology, uh, but with the word as the instrument of truth. Lord, this morning and this time, these next few minutes, I want to pray for this church, pray for, um, first of all, clarity of speech and clarity of exposition. Um, Lord, we count these next two chapters we're going into um, a treasure. And we're excited about the opportunity. I pray for 
attentiveness. I pray, too, for the kids that are with us in the, in the worship service this morning. I pray that you will connect to them, that the Holy Spirit will speak to their hearts, and that they'll see an awesome Jesus and an amazing cross. Lord, I pray that we together this morning can worship. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> this sermon this morning, and really I think the next two, but especially this morning, is I would say martyr equipping. Um, martyr equipping in that I think it's making potential martyrs, people that would be willing to go die for Jesus. Um, I'll say also at the same time, it's very impractical. It, it may be one of the most impractical sermons I've preached in a while. <laughs> and it occurred to me, I was thinking about it this week, I used to really labor over that. Oh, what a chore to preach an impractical message because I'm a pragmatist at heart. I, you know, everything, I, does this work? Does it work? Does it work? Does it work? Think about it in this term or in this respect. If someone shared with you something about your wife or husband, let's assume that you're married. Those of you who are, you can imagine this. If someone shared with you something maybe about their childhood, about what they treasured or what they thought was funny, your thought wouldn't be, does this work? Is this a practical thing? You wouldn't even go there because you love that person. And it's just a treasure for you to know something else about that person. So today we're going to engage something that may have no application to Tuesday. It likely will, but it may, no have, may not have any face value. Here's what I go do. Here's what I go walk in application. But it's realities about our Lord that we're going to spend eternity worshiping. So it's martyr equipping. It's not fact collecting. It's truth enjoying. So preparing you for something before we engage it. We're going to two chapters in our Bible that are really treasure chapters. We've earned the step into these two chapters in the last seven years, wouldn't you say? 17 chapters in seven and a half years. We're moving into chapters 18 and 19. I've done some study this last week, and I think I, it's possible that we could be out of John by the, end of the, by, by the summer. I know that's a surprise, but things sort of pick up the pace here at this point. Um, but these next few weeks, we're going to be spending in these next two chapters in the book of John. These next two chapters are just awesome. Without these two chapters, all his promises, all his claims are empty. Without these next two chapters, there's no Holy Spirit sent. Without what takes place in these two chapters, there's no gathering of his people to be with him. There's no place prepared for us without these two chapters. There's no rule, no reign, no hope. Without these two chapters, there's no new heavens and new earth. There's no eternal life because there's been no payment for sin without these two chapters. Without them, there's no gathering of the nations. There's no humanity, a new humanity made from Jew and Gentile. There's no church without these two chapters. Without them in a vacant tomb on a dewy Sunday morning, we are the most to be pitied. But oh, they're there. <laughs> they're there, and we're going to savor them and treasure them the next few weeks. John chapter 18. I'm going to read 
chapters 18 and 19 up to... Um, Verse 30. So let's just then savor this and enjoy this together. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, who also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. He said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I've lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers who had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. And Jesus answered him, I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? And Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. 
Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So, you're a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king? For this purpose I was born. And for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who's of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What even is truth? After he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. And Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him. Crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he was made himself out to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you're not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in an Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold, your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered them over. He delivered him over to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. 
There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I'm king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I've written, I've written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier, also also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It's finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. John's version of the passion in these two chapters has a purpose. The Gospels, there's four of them. Three of them are called the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're called the Synoptic Gospels because they sort of fit together. They sort of work together. They have a similar sequence of events. They share many of the same accounts in in much the same way. John's Gospel is different. John wrote these words. He says in chapter 20, verse 30, he wrote the book of John for a purpose. He said, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, speaking of the book of John. But these things, including how chapter 18 and 19 unfold, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John is very intentional about what he writes. Every word, every detail has deep an important meaning pointing toward his purpose of the book that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ. Knowing that, studying this account in chapters 18 and 19, something really, really stuck out to me as surprisingly absent. Turn to Mark chapter 14. I want to show you what's absent this little thing that I'm about to read to you is present in all three of the other Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I'm going to read the Mark version and share a couple of details from the Luke version. And I want you just for a moment with me to marvel that it's not in John. 
and we're going to con consider and examine together why it's not there. Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, this is the very same night that John's writing about. Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter, James, and John, the same guy who wrote the book that we're reading from in John chapter 18. And he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to these guys, Peter, James, and John, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found these guys, Peter, James, and John, sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you might not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words, Abba, Father, all these things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. The Luke account says that he's in such anguish that he's sweating like he's sweating drops of blood. The Luke account tells us also that there's an angel that comes and ministers to him. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. In studying John, examining these two chapters and John's version of the passion, knowing that John was an eyewitness to this very human moment, this Gethsemane agony where he's sweating like drops of blood, where he's begging the Father, Father, take this cup, take this cup from me, but yet not my will but yours. Why would John leave this out? It's a profound absence. It's a critical scene. But John leaves it out. And it seems he leaves it out for good reason. If anything, John sort of presents the opposite of the Gethsemane agony. John sort of presents the anti-agony. I have a book in my library. It's at the house right now, but I brought it home and I was studying it this week. It's a parallel gospel. It puts all four gospels next to each other as the events unfold. And, of course, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very similar. And then John just has stuff all over the place. It's just different. And in the Gethsemane agony, it's across the board, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, very similar. And then in John, this little parallel Bible that I have, took this excerpt from the book of John. Listen to it. Chapter 12. It says, now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? 
Sounds sort of like the Gethsemane agony. But then he says, but for this purpose, I've come to this hour. It's like it's ridiculous. Of course I can't ask him to take me and keep me from this hour because I've come for this purpose. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice booms from heaven. I've glorified it and I will glorify it again. John is showing something different. John sort of shows the anti-Gethsemane prayer. Instead of Jesus saying, take this cup from me, he's saying, how could I ask for this cup to be taken from me? They don't contradict each other. They complement each other. It seems John wants us to see another side of Jesus, an important side of Jesus. If all we had was Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there's the potential that we could see the passion with Christ as victim. But John's up to something very different. He wants it to see rounded out. He wants us to see the big picture of Christ going to the cross. He's up to something. There are other writers in our Bibles that have done a very similar thing. I think of James and Paul. If you've read much of the book of James and you've read much of Paul's writings, you know that James says, show me your faith by your works. And yet Paul says, faith is apart from works that men should boast. They're not contradictory. They're two sides of the same coin because true faith works. That's what's taking place here in these three synoptics. This one side of a coin where we see a gruesome hour that Christ submits to. But then John wants us to see the other side of the coin, the other ultimate reality that rounds out what's really taking place at the cross. What I want to do in these next few moments is engage the evidence that John provides that will show us what he's getting at. That are going to show us really his take on the cross. You've got to realize that everybody has a take on everything. And John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, records his take on the cross. Turn to John chapter 1. These first few we're going to move pretty quickly. Sort of gathering the evidence to get at what John is getting at. Evidence that he's up to something. Evidence that he's wanting us to see something in this passion. Something important. John chapter 1, beginning in verse 45, Christ has just called Philip to follow him. And Philip then finds Nathanael and says to him, Hey, Nate, we found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nate says to him, Can anything good come out of Quinlan? That's essentially what he's saying. I'm not picking on Quinlan. Somebody could say Greenville. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip says to him, Nathaniel's a skeptic right off the bat. Philip says to him, come and see. So Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite <coughs> indeed in whom there's no deceit. Nathaniel says to him, How do you even know me? And Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. 
Now, what took place there, what he saw, we don't know. It's sort of this divine, ambiguous moment. And Nathaniel answered. It connected with Nathaniel, apparently, because Nathaniel answered. He says, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. If I'm an Israelite, then you're my king. Nathaniel saw something in Jesus that John wants us to see. He says, you're the king of Israel. Turn to John chapter 6. Jesus has fed the multitudes from five barley loaves and two fish. And the people seeing the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. In verse 15, it says, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. John provides these details wanting us to see this event, wanting us to see that these people wanted to make him king, but yet he withdrew for it wasn't his time, and he's not going to be the kind of king that they want. Turn to John chapter 10. Jesus has been preaching on his role as the good shepherd. And in verse 17, he says this. He says, for this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. I lay down my own life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my father. John wants us to see that no one takes his life from him. No king, no pilot, no Roman governor, no authority, no posse coming to Gethsemane at midnight. No mob demanding Barabbas. He has authority to lay his own life down. John wants us to see it. He wants us to see the ultimate reality behind chapters 18 and 19. Look over at chapter 12. Although chapter 12 was years ago for us, it was a week before his cross. This is the uh, detail of the event when he enters Jerusalem. In chapter 12, verse 12, it says, The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it's written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming. Sitting on a donkey's colt. John wants us to see that a king was hailed at the beginning of this Passover week. A contrary king. Not the king that they wanted. The king that he was to be is the sort of king that's looking around for a donkey's colt. Where's a donkey's colt that I can ride so that my toes drag the ground so they see what sort of king I am to be? I'm a contrary king. A contrary king that's going to wash feet later in the week. 
Then in chapter 12, verse 36, sort of like John pauses in his story. It's sort of like he pauses and provides some commentary up to this point. He stops down and he shares these words beginning in verse 36, the second part. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He's blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. If you've been paying attention these last couple of years, you know that John dined on a diet of Isaiah. We see much Isaiah in John. The reference that John is pointing to is in the book of Isaiah chapter 6. Don't turn there, just listen. It's almost verbatim where he's talking about what's going to happen when the Christ shows up and he does all these mighty works and as he preaches, their hearts will be hardened and their ears will be deafened. This is the very same chapter It begins like this. In the year that King Uzziah died, in the year that worldly authority, human authority died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. With two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king the Lord of hosts. John says Isaiah was referring to a vision of Jesus. He says he saw his glory. As John is writing this book, as he pauses to think about, almost in disappointment, all the people that have not believed, he remembers back to Isaiah, his diet. And he says, you know, Isaiah said they wouldn't believe. But in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the true king. I saw the living king. Isaiah saw him. John sees him. John is developing a reality about Christ that we've got to see when we go into chapters 18 and 19 of a living king. It's important enough for us to consider. Together, Isaiah and John consider Christ the true king. Go back to John chapter 18. Let's look at some more evidence. <clears throat> John chapter 18, verse 33. Listen to the dialogue. Listen to repeated words to see what this topic, what this conversation is about. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? 
Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? And Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom were of this world. My servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. And then Pilate said to him, So you're a king? Jesus answered, You say that I'm a king for this purpose. I was born for this purpose. I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Then chapter 19, verse 2. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. And they came to him saying, Hail, king of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. In verse 10. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me. Do you not know I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. It seems Pilate, at face value, it looks like he has authority over Christ's fate. If you're walking by sight and you're reading it at face value and you're not looking for the truth there, it looks like Pilate is the one who's considering his fate. But in reality, Pilate doesn't breathe except for Christ wills it. Colossians says that Christ is the one in whom all things are held together. Pilate can't put together a thought except that Christ wills it. The irony that they're talking about authority because Christ is king. John wants us to see it. Eyes and circumstance may say one thing, but ultimate reality says quite another. John wants us to see the quite another. And then on in verse 19, chapter, or chapter 19, verse 12. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you're not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down at the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in an Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold, your king... And then he says, shall I crucify your king? And they say, we have no king but Caesar. Ironic. The nation of Israel who once begged for a king now wants to crucify the true king. Ironic that those who cheered him only a week earlier now call Caesar their king. Just the sheer volume in the book of John of king and kingdom talk should cinch for us what John is getting at, what he wants us to see in chapters 18 and 19. But there's more. There's three more things I want to show you. Two of them are unique to John. They're surprise evidence, surprise treats. The Lord showed to me this week. Look in verse 3 of chapter 18. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers, in the original language, the word for band indicates that this may have been four or five hundred Roman soldiers. 
One of the gospel accounts says that there was a large entourage or posse that came with Judas. Four or five hundred Roman soldiers and some of the officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. The other accounts say that they were clubs and spears. And then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward. Reminded me of David and Goliath running at Goliath. He came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? And they answered, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them in the original language, it's not, hey, ask me. The original language, it's two words. I am. It's the words whenever Moses said, okay, God, you want me to go lead your people out of Egypt? Who shall I say sent me? And you tell them, I am that I am sent you. It's where the word Yahweh comes from. You may remember John chapter 8, the revival gone bad, where all these people believed in him, but yet he kept preaching. He says, if you're truly my disciples, you will abide in my word, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. That chapter, by the end of it, they picked up stones wanting to stone him. The reason they wanted to stone him is because they appealed to their relationship to Abraham, and he said, you know what? Before Abraham was, I am. Those are the two words that he said in the garden. And what happens? Hundreds of people fall down at the mere mention of his name. I am. John wants us to see it. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them when Jesus said to them, I am. They drew back and fell to the ground. Of course they did. They have a head start on the rest of creation that will one day bow and confess Jesus as Lord at the mere mention of his name. The other detail is provided in chapter 18, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley. I told you that John is very specific about the details that he provides. Only in John is there a mention of the Kidron Valley. The Old Testament has pretty thorough development on four accounts of the Kidron. One of them is when Absalom took the kingdom from David. And David went into exile through the Kidron Valley with his followers. The exile is a picture of death. And later he's restored to his throne. It's a great picture of what's going on here. But what I really found interesting were the other three developments. Three kings of Judah. Three kings of Judah that all experienced the same thing. They had a father, a grandfather, a great-grandfather that was a dirtbag, that worshipped foreign idols, that escorted male prostitutes into the temple, that set up Asherah poles, high places, on every hill and under every green tree, And yet they were a good king and they called God's people back to obedience and purification. And in all three instances, what they did is they took the Asherah poles, they took the altars that were made for Baal, and they took them to the Kidron Valley. They took the trash out because that's what good kings do. Their names were Asa, Hezekiah, and Josiah, three of the greatest kings of Judah. They took the trash to the Kidron because that's what good kings do. It says in one account that these altars were just kind of thrown into the Kidron Valley. 
And I thought about sometimes when you're driving in the country and you drive by that house. You know the house I'm talking about that has a couch in the front yard? Has five or six broken down cars sitting around outside? I hope I'm not talking about your house. (laughs) But I thought about the Kidron Valley littered with idol worship artifacts, broken down, ground down, destroyed, because that's what good kings do. They take the trash out. And it's just so appropriate that Jesus went east into the Kidron Valley because he's going to bear our trash the next day. Man, that's one thing that snuck up on me as I'm considering this. Just a little word, the Kidron Valley, the only gospel that mentions it. He went east into the Kidron because that's what good kings do. Blessed by that picture. When it's time for reform and purification, the good kings go to the Kidron. Then the last thing in chapter 19, the last verse I read, verse 30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it's finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. He gave gave up his own spirit just like he said in the previous consideration in chapter 10. No one takes my life from me. No king. No Roman governor, no Roman soldier with nails and wood. No cross, no authority, no posse, no mob. I give it up willingly like a king. It seems John wants us to see another side of Jesus. He wants us to see his passion as a triumphant and regal and noble and royal king willingly going to his death. He's no victim. He's victor. He's no victim. He's a victor. I thought it would be appropriate this morning to end the message with a reading from the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 5. I think it's no small coincidence that John, the same writer of this gospel account that puts forth Christ as the noble and regal king is the man that has a glimpse into the throne room of heaven. In chapter 4, he sees the Father and the Spirit in the throne room. In chapter 5, he sees the Lamb. Let's look in there with him. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who's worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. Just imagine that declaration by a strong angel, a request. Who's worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And then imagine the silence. Crickets. Who's worthy? And John says, I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And then one of the elders said to me, Hey, John, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he's conquered. He's not victim. He's victor. 
He's conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb, a contrary king. You hear Lion of Judah, but you look over and you see a lamb standing as though it had been slain. With seven horns, with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you, Victor. Conqueror, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, chapters 18 and 19, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You were no victim. You were victor, royal king, and you've made them a kingdom kingdom of priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth and then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands and thousands that's a bunch saying with a loud voice it's a good word worthy Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that's in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said the only thing appropriate, amen. And the elders fell down and did what elders do, worshiped. Let's pray. Lord, as I think about something like the Passion movie... I see victim. And I'm so thankful for this sweet, sweet aspect, this sweet complimentary perspective from John that shows a regal and noble and able and mighty king going to a noble death. Lord, I pray that this takes us from a place of looking at the cross and going, ah, and looking at it and cheering for our King of kings and Lord of lords. Lord, I pray it takes us to a place of worship, enjoying the mighty work of the cross, enjoying the powerful people builder that it was and is, Lord, I pray it takes us to a place of marveling that we're caught up in that work. I pray that it'll leave shepherds of families 
aghast, shocked, amazed, so that that conversation will invade a dinner table. Or a den. Or a long car ride. Or a Tuesday. Or a difficult hour. Lord, I pray that we can be overwhelmed with this story. I pray for our small group shepherds that they can serve that small group and walk with that small group out of marvel. I pray for our worship guys that they can sing their hearts out out of marvel and wonder. I pray for our older women in this body to pour themselves out into the younger women and teach them to love their husbands and teach them to love Jesus out of marvel and wonder. I pray for those families that we have in the far corners of the field right now that they can serve even in difficult situations out of marvel and wonder at the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Lord, I pray that the elders can serve and worship like these elders on our faces. Enjoying the Lamb. Lord, we love you. We count it a sweet privilege to enjoy you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Some wonder why we take communion every week. It's not a bad thing to wonder that. The short answer is that uh, we, we do that because we're forgetful. And Jesus said, do this to remember me. And God, in the Old Testament, continually puts before his people, don't forget, don't forget, don't forget. Remember, remember, remember. And it's why on the table we have, do this in remembrance of me, quoting Jesus. We're forgetful. That's the short answer to why we do this. I want you to listen to Deuteronomy chapter 8. You don't have to turn there. Just listen. This is uh, chapter 8, right after he has proclaimed that they are a chosen people, set aside holy for his namesake, an unlikely people, set aside and chosen for his namesake. He goes in and talks about remembering. Don't forget. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you, and he let you hunger, and he fed you with manna, and which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone. But man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. 
Remember that he is a God of provision. We are a people of many appetites. But he is a God of provision. And we trust today this provision, his body. We trust his body like we trust that there'll be lunch somewhere in just a few minutes. You have to connect this to faith when you take this supper. This connects to your faith. You trust his body and his blood like we trust that there'll be lunch in a minute. And so this has to connect for us that his provision is enough. Do you take this in faith? If you are believing and trusting in him that it is enough, it'll mean that this week will not be another week of trying to be a good boy again trying to be a good girl again. But we will trust that this is enough. His body and his blood is enough. Remember, don't forget it. It is enough. Spiritually, our appetite will grow for this. It will grow to remember that he is enough. That's where our appetite will go. And it will build our faith. Just like a full belly will increase your appetite to be full again. This grows our faith. Listen to what he he goes on to say about this 40 years. Your clothing didn't wear out on you. Your feet didn't swell up. Your clothing didn't wear out. Your feet didn't swell up. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, fountains and springs flowing in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines, fig trees, pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity. There's your victor. Always enough. Never going to run dry. Always enough. I'm taking you to a land where you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and whose hills you can dig copper. You shall eat and you will be full. You shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that you are a God of provision, and we want to remember that in this supper today, that your cross Your body and your blood are plenty. And that's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Full, enough, no scarcity of bread. Church, stop trying to make yourself worthy and trust Jesus. Believe what you've heard today and trust Jesus. Take and eat. It's his death that we proclaim until he comes. Take and drink. Father, as we move into a part of our worship where we're giving, we do not trust our giving to make us worthy, but we give out of worship and marvel and guard our hearts in that. Do what you will with us and keep us mindful of being good stewards of what you've given. 
And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Sing with me. We long, we long for your return. We beg you soon arrive. Sing heaven. Don't 
stand to your feet. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there's no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you even know me? And Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, you were under the fig, or when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Man, I'll tell you, two things really kind of broke me up this morning. One was that because Jesus has seen me. And I, I'm personally, a personal response well, you're the king of Ben. If, I, if I'm a true Ben, true Israelite or whatever, you're the king. Of, you're my king. I, I don't know what that was. What did he see? I don't know, but he's seen me. I'm not talking about when I was a six-year-old either. I'm talking about this week. That's what worship is. He saw me under a fig tree this week. And man, when he sees you in that penetrating thing, you see love and you see grace and you see mercy and you see truth and you see life. It just, it just destroys me. Because I know me. The other thing that broke me up this morning is thinking about shepherds. I ache for you to be a good steward with tomorrow. We wait for the clouds to part for some divine moment to begin to shepherd our families in truth when something's going to overwhelm you. How about tomorrow? How about lunch today? I hear from guys, man, I just don't feel equipped. I just don't know what to do. Well, how about talking about what God did today? Let's start there. That's what worship is. We have stewardship over tomorrow's church. I ache for this to be enjoyed. Church is so easy to do. To just show up. And years can go by. Years. And you just, yeah, I'm a Christian. 
And you say, well, share your testimony. Share your story with me. And you got nothing to share except when you were six years old and you prayed to ask Jesus to save you. Which is awesome. But man, has he seen you under the fig tree this week? Have you marveled and said, you're the king of Ben this week? Why not? How about tomorrow? How about March? Is that good enough? 2011? Let's do, let's walk in this now. It's too good to just exist. It's to be savored now. We have some sweet weeks in these next two chapters. Sweet weeks in store. Next week we're going to consider the garden. The garden connection. Y'all stand and I'll dismiss you. Lord, what a marvelous, marvelous king we serve. Lord, we confess and declare this morning he's the king of Crosspoint. Lord, we beg and pray for him to be the king of Greenville. We pray for those who are on the far corners right now that they'll be the king of those families, that he'll be the king of the shepherd's hearts this week in this body. Lord, we declare him a worthy king today. We marvel marvel at the greatness of God. We pray these things in his mighty name. Amen. Thank you all.